Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. If grace changes everything, does that even include religion? How about faith? When we look at the life of Jesus, the answer seems to be yes. This past Sunday at Storyline's Gathering, we explored how Jesus' gospel of grace reframes religion and transforms the nature of faith. The band performed songs by Beyonce, The Rolling Stones, Waxahachie and Tara. Let's have a listen. Saw her today at the reception A glass of wine in her hand And knew she was gonna meet her connection And her feet was a footloose man and you can always get what you want you can always get what you want you can always get what you want but if you try sometimes you might find you get what you need To get our fair share of abuse Singing, we're gonna vent our frustration And if we don't, we're gonna blow a 50 and fuse And you can always get what you want you can always get what you want. You can always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need.
back here in the States, yes. back in the States, you're, you're known for having a problem or two with some of uh, our trends in our culture. Yes. Anything bothering you right now? Well, I, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the world's <laughs> ending. But um, I would say uh, generally there's an overall misuse of the prayer hands emoji. <laughs> um, it's just people. Yeah. In what way? Well, People have to I, I've, got, down. I've gotten a few recently. Yeah, no, yeah, you'll yeah. get a text from someone and they'll say, see you at dinner, prayer hands. And you're like, no, no prayer. Are you not going to make it? Are you praying for me? Are you suggesting we eat hands? What are you saying? Uh, we've talked about this before. You have, you have a certain level of uh, religiosity. You know, you don't bang a drum about it, but you, they still let you go to church. They still, yeah. I mean, I always, every time I walk in church, I feel like someone is going to stop me and go, We've discovered you're a monster. You can't come in. <laughs> but I am trying. You know, wow. it's always, this is the only show in America where it turns to like, what about your faith, Jim? <laughs> Which is, and by the way, I love it. But it's like, it's like, a, not that I was ever cool, but it's like at a certain point, it's like, hey, I know Jim's fat and old and has five kids, but I do want you to know he's a religious freak, too. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> <laughs>
of resilient meaning. And they gave me the look, one of the folks in this group gave me the look like, go on. Now remember, they're new. They, they didn't know any better. You guys would know better than to <laughs> imply, like, tell me more, right? Because I just, I kind of kept going. And so I launched in with some of the things that we've talked about and dreamed about over the years. And basically our read of the last 40 years, certainly the last 30 years of the church in America is that it has become more and more about me. Like it's become more and more about consumerism. Like what's in it for me? When I go to church, what do I get out of it? When do I get fed? You know, essentially American Christianity is more about American, it's more American than it is Christian in a lot of ways. And because of this, the church has, uh, over the years, more and more concentrated on emotionalized worship, you know, personal comfort, serving the felt needs of those who are there as opposed to the real needs of those who are not. And while all of that has a place, in the long run, it's just too shallow, I think, is what we have found as a community. It doesn't, it doesn't anchor us into anything that will give us a resilient meaning in the inevitable storms of life. Now, it's not like we're not getting plenty of suggestions as we go through our real everyday life, plenty of suggestions of like where we should anchor our life, like what it is that we should be about and pursue. Popular culture, for example, celebrates to no end fame and fortune. But the problem is, is that it doesn't really take long, it doesn't take a lot of sophistication at all to, to look at people who have one, and especially people who have both of these things, and to, to go, that's not what we need. It's not what we need. And, and even middle class values of hard work and save and eat your vegetables, like build a life of health and prosperity and security, those things can be nice, there's nothing wrong with any of them, but again, we, have, we can have those and a life of resilient meaning, of deep purpose and passion can still elude us. On the other hand, I, th I think we all know people, these like peculiar people who've seen the worst that life has to throw at them. They don't have any of these things or maybe they've lost a lot of these things and they do live lives of passion and purpose. The question is how? How do they do that? And they seem to be connected to something deeper, something like beneath all of this, something that's come before them, something that's going beyond them. I, I suspect that we all know we need more than all the world has to offer to anchor our lives into something that will help us grow a beautiful life. And I think that's what we're trying to do here together. Like explore the contours, the possibilities, the realities and, and the challenges of living a life of resilient meaning that grows out of being anchored in what we often call when we're together, the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus. And so we are on together a mission of deep meaning for deep meaning. To, to live in and to live out the grace of God in ways that make it accessible and relevant 
to everyone, everywhere, every day. And the hypothesis we're working with is this, that all of this begins to happen in and through us when we drop our anchor, when we place our faith, when we put our trust in God's grace. The Bible puts it a little more succinctly like this. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And that's what I'd like to wonder about together this morning and again next Sunday as we continue our series, Grace Changes Everything. I'd like to wonder about this relationship between God's grace and our faith and the life that we are longing for. So the first question, it seems to me, goes something like this. How does grace change faith? And this is what I'm wondering. Does the reality that we are being invited by God into a trust, into trust, not in fame, not in fortune, not in health or security, but in him and his grace, does that invitation actually change the nature of what it means to have faith? And I think what we're going to see is that in one way it doesn't, and in two other very important ways, it does. Now, as always, there's no easy answers here. I'm not pretending to like, I'm gonna you know, wrap up everything that faith is in the next two weeks, okay? That's not what this is about. We are, I'm not trying to end a conversation on this. We're actually trying to start a conversation about faith, okay? And its connection, our faith and its connection to God's grace. So in one of the biographies of Jesus, there's a really surprising encounter that he has with a Roman soldier. It's one of many in which people, religious people, look at it and go, what in the world is going on? Like, what is this guy doing? And I think what we're gonna see is it gives us some insight into our question this morning. So this is what the Bible says. At that time, the highly prized slave of a Roman army captain was sick and near death. When the captain heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they began pleading earnestly with Jesus to come with them and help the man. They they told him what a wonderful person the captain was. If anyone deserves your help, it is he, they said. For he loves the Jews and he even paid personally to build us a synagogue. Now, Jesus went with them, but just before arriving at the house, the captain sent some of his friends to say, sir, don't inconvenience yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy. Just speak a word from where you are, and my slave will be healed. I know, because I have authority over my men. I only need to say, go, and they go or come and they come. So just say, be healed, and my servant will be well again. Jesus was amazed. This is one of the few times in the Bible that we get that Jesus is described this way. Like he's shocked and surprised. Jesus was amazed, and turning to the crowd, he said something totally stunning. Never among all the Jews. Like you people, 
the in crowd, the cool kids. Never among all of the Jews in Israel have I met a man with faith like this. And when the captain's friend returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. That's a really bizarre encounter. This is not something that you would make up if you're making this up because Jesus is breaking all kinds of rules and norms here. So I'd like to invite us to consider two things about faith from this passage. First is, how does faith come to us? And the second is, like, just what is faith? And then next week, we'll consider a third question. Where does that kind of faith take us? Okay, so how does faith come to us? And I think the first thing that we see is this. Faith comes to us like naturally, as in inevitably, as in universally. Now I know that that sounds a little bit weird, so give me a second. See, the religious leaders give themselves away here. This is what they said to Jesus. Jesus, come and heal this man's slave. Why? He's a good guy. He's just such a good guy. He's done all these good deeds. He deserves it. He deserves it. You see, here's the thing about faith. Everyone has it. Everyone has faith. It is impossible to live life without faith. We all base our lives and build our lives on unproven and unprovable assumptions about reality. And some plan that we make with our life that we believe will make our life work. So for religious people, and we see it here in these religious leaders in, in, in this story in the Bible, their faith comes down to this. Okay, this is their plan. If I do X, Y, and Z, then God will make good things happen for me. That is how they think reality works. Now, what is X, Y, and Z might be the question. Well, that depends on your religion. Because, you know, it could be, in one religion, it could be face east and pray so many times a day. Another religion, it could be believe the right things about God. It could be, in another religion, meditate and achieve some, like, higher state of consciousness. In other religions, it might be perform this ritual, observe that holy day. The X, Y, and Z is what differentiates one religion from another, but all religions can be boiled down to this one thing that they all have in common. It's really about this one thing. What do we have to do to deserve it? What do we have to do to get God on our side? That's all religion, every single one. That's what religion is about. Now, but keep in mind, the faith that we all naturally, universally, inevitably live with doesn't even have to have anything to do with God. We can take God out of that religious formula and put in there any number of different things. You see, when one's faith is in the spiritual realm, whether one's faith is in the spiritual realm, like some kind of religion, or if it's in fame or fortune or security or control or America or health or security, 
It's all faith. We're betting that by having those things or one of those things or some combination of them, that, uh, that by trusting in that plan, that if we follow it, we'll earn it. We will deserve goodness to come into our life. And that is what will anchor us in the storms of life. So it's important to point out when we look at this particular story, this encounter with Jesus, that the Jewish leaders are not displaying, they're displaying faith, because everybody universally has faith, but they're not displaying a faith in the grace of God. It's really ironic. The religious leaders come to Jesus not because they believe Jesus is gracious and loving, but because they believe Jesus is powerful and now owes that power to this Roman captain. Not because God is good, but because the captain is good. It's exactly, that is how religion works. And it's exactly upside down of what Jesus is inviting us into. You see, these religious guys appear to be so godly. I mean, they, I, and I think we know the type. They like dress the part. They talk the part. They have the costumes, the uniforms. They, you know, they probably stand up straight. They probably don't cuss. They would never bet on a football game. There's all kinds. I mean, it's just like these are the straight and narrow guys. They're, they're always talking about God. And deep down, their faith isn't about God's goodness. It's in their own. That's the irony. It's in their own. You see, here's the thing. We can never disbelieve in God's goodness without at the very same instant believing in, trusting in, basing our life on and hope on something else. One English writer, G.K. Chesterton, put it this way. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They start believing in anything. And I think that's true. And, and almost always has some version of ourselves. That's what we go to. Our goodness, our talent, our education, our bank account, our plans for the future, our religion, our fill in the blank. These are the things that I'm lining up in my life that if I take care of them, if I hone them, if I get them, if I keep them, that is what will anchor me with a resilient meaning in life that will hold me steady and firm when the inevitable storms of life come my way. The point is, is that we all have faith. We all must and we all do trust in something unprovable to make our life work. And in this sense, the nature of faith that Jesus is inviting us into is not any different than the faith that the world is inviting us into. It's a trust in blanks goodness for us. Fill in the blank with anything. It's a trust in blank's goodness for us. The invitation of Jesus is simply, in that sense, a new direction. A new direction of trust. Of a trust that we all have, naturally, universally, 
inevitably. So allow me to mention one other thing about this. One other thing about this thought about the direction of our faith. Because this is a very common conversation that I get, and I'll try to kind of distill this down and generalize it. But this is, I have this conversation so often, and it's something like this. A very sincere person will say something like, Mike, no one can be sure about God. And okay, that's fair enough. I totally don't, I don't disagree with that. But then I ask them, and yet, you just made a very certain statement about God. How can you be sure of that? How do you know you're right that nobody can be right about God? And there's often at that point like one of those things of like, oh, I never really thought of it that way, right? And so very politely, I I suggest that maybe the way that you know no one can be certain about God is faith. Like you're kind of making a statement of faith, right? And when I have this conversation, this is not me trying to prove that God exists. I'm only pointing out that they, like me, like everyone, have made a leap of faith, a leap for or toward some ultimate goal or plan that we are all trusting will save us, deliver to us a life anchored in resilient meaning. In his book, uh, A Severe Mercy, the author Sheldon Van Alken talks about how his faith finally changed direction. This is what he said. I began to see a gap between proved and possible. And it would take faith to cross it. But how? If I was going to stake my whole life on Jesus, I didn't want there to be any gap between proved and possible. I wanted letters of fire like written across the sky. But then I realized there's also a gap behind me as well. I couldn't prove that Jesus was God, but by God, I certainly couldn't prove that Jesus wasn't. And I realized I couldn't just, I couldn't reject Jesus without a great leap of faith, nor could I go forward without one. And once I saw that the gap behind me was just as great as the gap before me, I leapt toward Jesus. And like it or not, we are all in that place. There is always a gap between proved and possible. This is the human dilemma. We all live by faith. The question is just in what? or in whom, or in what kind of God. And in Jesus, we are receiving an invitation to trust in a gracious God. Remember those walls I built? Well, baby, they're tumbling down. Didn't even put up a fight They didn't even make a sound I found a way to let you in But I 
every rule I had you breaking It's the risk that I'm taking I ain't never gonna shut you out Everywhere I'm looking now I'm surrounded by your embrace Baby, I can see your halo You know you're my saving grace You're everything I need and more It's written all over your face Baby, I can see your halo Sanai. Thank you, thank you. Wow. So in one sense, the, the faith is completely natural. It, it comes to us naturally. It comes to us inevitably. It comes to us universally. It is impossible to not live day to day with faith. Nobody lives by science. You can't follow the data through all and every aspect of life. Science can tell us what is, it can't tell us why, or what now, or what next, or what will work for our own human flourishing. And the invitation of Jesus then is to place our faith in him. It really doesn't change the nature of faith in that sense. 
It's just an invitation to change its direction from a faith in some religion, if, it's a, if your plan is spiritual, or to change your faith from some other plan, your faith in your education, and your bank account, and your marriage, and your children, and your accomplishments, achievements, your power, prestige, the list is just endless. And this is an invitation to change direction, the direction of our faith. But, but in another sense, when we change the direction of our faith toward the grace of God, it does change the nature of what faith is itself. Which leads us to our second question, which is what is faith? What is faith? And again, you know, we could go on and on about this, and I, I, I am not pretending that what we're, what we're about to wonder about here together is the end all be all, like the you know, treatise on faith, okay? But look what happens here. The Roman captain sends a message to Jesus. Just say the word. Just say the word. He is saying, Jesus, I know you have power. You you can do this from right where you're at. Like, he, he explains, I'm a man with some power because I'm tight with the emperor. Like, we are buddies. And because I'm tight with the emperor, because I'm his boy, I have access to his power. By implication, the captain is saying, Jesus, you seem to be pretty tight with God. Like you guys seem like your buddies at the very least, right? So therefore just say so and it will be done. Well, there is no doubt, that is faith. But it's really important to see something here. That is not a very accurate faith, is it? Like, I mean, Jesus is much more than just God's captain. much more than just God's buddy. The faith that this captain has isn't even close to theologically correct or complete. And yet Jesus not only goes ahead and heals this man's slave, he praises his faith in front of not just Jewish people, but like the Jewish like high elite religious scholars as the best faith he's ever seen in anyone. Now they must have been like, what in the hey-ho is going on? This dude is like, he's part of our oppressors. He's, he's in our God's country, ruling over God's people. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a good guy, relatively speaking, right? And here's how you know, here's how you know when my, the point is, is that his faith is far from complete, it's far from accurate. It's not even close. But here's how you know when someone has faith in their faith. Like, faith in their religious plan versus God's grace. There's a fixation on heresy hunting. Like on figuring out exactly, people do this to me all the time. It's one of my favorite things, okay? They like figuring out and seeking out every little detail of exactly what you believe and don't believe about God and then testing it against, you know, their particular totally accurate interpretation of the Bible. 
This happens, this happens all, I should record these conversations, right? But the pra- this practice is what gave us the Inquisition, the Crusades, the witch trials, religious wars in Europe, and untold church splits in the, in the wide, worldwide Christian church that has fractured, literally, the Christian church into tens of thousands of denominations. Tens of thousands of people like going, well, make sh- I'm only gonna hang out with the people who have it exactly right and all right, and we're gonna start our own little thing over here, and nobody else is allowed in, right? All of which says what to a watching world about the way of Jesus? This is what it says. You better get it right. You, you better get it right. You better have it all right. You cannot, you cannot mess this up. You better, have, you better believe exactly the right thing in exactly the right way. In other words, the accuracy, the accuracy of your faith is what you need to deserve God's love. Otherwise, he's, he's, God's just like, I'm just waiting to see if you get this right. Yet when we look at Jesus... When we look at Jesus, he isn't like that at all. He isn't like that at all. Jesus didn't come to start the right religion. He came to actually end religion altogether. Now, how do we know that? Well, this Roman captain is one of so many examples. The Roman captain wasn't the right religion, and his faith about Jesus wasn't even close to accurate. Later, in this very same chapter of Luke, he forgives the sins of a prostitute, Now, she doesn't say she's sorry. She doesn't promise to repent. She never expresses any kind of faith in Jesus at all. She's only realized that her current direction isn't working, and that's enough. Jesus jumps in. Jesus includes tax collectors and terrorists and doubters as his disciples. They couldn't have passed a fourth grade Sunday school quiz about him. No clue. They're arguing about who he is and what's going on all the way to the end. He once healed a man's son when the man admitted, I kind of believe and I kind of don't. Good enough. (laughs) Now Now we're gonna talk more next week about our response to this kind of grace. Because this this isn't the end of the story, but the point here is for now, religion has way overcooked the importance of our being completely accurate, flawless, perfect and pure, and having this strong faith like that. Why? Why is that such a big deal for religion? Because religion's focus is always on us. Religion is... Religion is always about us and our fitness and our goodness. Getting ourselves cleaned up enough to get God on our side. The way of Jesus, however, puts our focus on God and his goodness. Completely opposite. It's not only a new direction of our trust, It is grace changing the nature of faith into a new desire for life. So it's not just a change of direction, it's a change of desire. 
I'll, I'll never forget when I first, this kind of first came home to me. I had, this was probably about 20 years ago now. Um, for many summers when our children were younger, Lisa and I would take them to Young Life Camp every summer. I'm a teacher, Lisa was a stay-at-home mom, so we had summers off, and we would volunteer for one month every summer. We did this for uh, at least 10 years. And so one summer, um, we took our family and we spent a month at Castaway Camp, which is a Young Life Camp in Minnesota. Um, and every June at Castaway Camp, the kids, they come in every week. So you're there for four sessions. They come in every week. And one particular week, I think it's usually the third week of June, um, there are kids, teenagers, from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation that come in to Castaway Camp. And um, it was, this was my first exposure to Native American kids. And so I, I will just never forget watching them get off the bus for the first time. And they had, they had prepped us and told us that Pine Ridge is the poorest, if you view the reservation as a county, it's the poorest county in the United States. Poorest county. And these kids got off this bus and if they had anything, it was like a plastic grocery bag filled with just a few items of clothing. Maybe, um, maybe a pillowcase. And I mean, it was, you could tell right away that they're super poor. But I was also having flashbacks to my time in Los Angeles, that this was a, probably about 2004 or five that this happened. And I had been teaching in the inner city of Los Angeles until 1997, doing Young Life there. And I could tell when the boys walked off the bus from the way that they dressed, from the hand signals that they were throwing up, from their tattoos, that these boys, at least, were in a gang. They're, they're gangsters. <laughs> now, my role at the camp that summer was, unfortunately, essentially vice principal. Like, okay, so my role is like, keep the peace, deal with the issues. And, uh, you know, I'm having PTSD at this point because right away, you know, red flags are going off, red lights are going off. So I knew that the best way to do this is to dive right in with these young men. Like, catch them being good. Try to build some rapport and hopefully head off any trouble ahead of time, right? So with all the courage I could muster, I turned to Lisa and my kids, and I'm prepared to march over there. And I first grabbed Jimmy and Jenna's hands, and I thought, I'm gonna take them with me. And so we marched across the camp with my eight-year-old and six-year-old because, you know, I'm thinking, how, what, what bad could happen if I have two little kids with me? So we went over there and we met these kids and they were lovely, they were wonderful, they were so excited to be there uh, and we started, you know, introducing ourselves and things like that and these, the kids from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation are Lakota. Sometimes we refer to it as Sioux Indians but they, they go by Lakota Indians and they have an English name, but then they also have their name in their native language. And my kids were absolutely fascinated, as was I, to find out that their names all meant something. So they would tell us their Lakota name and then tell us this is what it means in English. And it's usually some, some kind of short phrase. And one young man, just to be honest, one young man, his English name was Tad. And he, he was clearly the roughest of the bunch, the leader of the whole situation, and the one that I knew just instinctively I'm really going to have to lean into this week. 
And so he told us his name, and then I said, well, what does it mean? And he said, smoking gun. <laughs> and I laughed, and I looked at him, and he was, he was not laughing at all. Like, <laughs> to this day, I'm like, oh my gosh, did someone name their kid smoking gun? Not good. So... Jimmy and Jenna later at dinner are telling Lisa about this great adventure that we had. And so we actually ask, I ask them, I go, you know, what would our names be? And you know, if we had Indian names and phrases, what would mom's name be? And Jenna goes, oh, I know, talks on the phone. <laughs> and Jimmy goes, uh, shops a lot. <laughs> My stories are so much better when Lisa's out of town. I just love this, so great. Now, unfortunately, as the week wore on, we got to about night three, and Tad um, got into a horrible fight with another camper, actually someone from the reservation with him. And he got into this fight and then just ran off of camp. He took off down the road, middle of the night, the camp director and I were called, and I jumped in the camp director's car, and we tore off down the road to try to find this kid. And we get down the road, I don't know, half mile at least, and we find him walking down the road and he was informing us in very descriptive terms about how he felt about us personally, how he thought we looked that particular time. I mean, it was very colorful language and that his plan was to walk back to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which we know is a nine hour drive, okay? So like this is obviously not going to happen. It is the middle of the night so I get out of the car, the camp director is driving at a walking pace, and I'm walking, trying to catch up to him, trying to talk to him, he's furious, he's yelling, he's screaming, he is dropping F-bombs in a way that I, I never heard before, and um, until finally, out of nowhere, he stops for half a second, turns right, and shoots into the woods, like takes off into like the pitch black forest of Minnesota. Right, so I stop, I look back at the camp director who's driving with his interior light on so I can see him and he goes, like, like you better go after him. And so, so you know, I'm thinking, how did I get into this? And I take off, I go into the woods, it's pitch black, I couldn't see a thing and all I could think about was in all those movies when the white guy follows an Indian into the woods, it never ends well for the white guy, right? Like this is not good, okay? So I couldn't see a thing. I could hear Tad move. And when he moved, I would go towards the sound. Then he would hear me, and then he would stop. Then he would do it again. And we followed this pattern for what had to be 20 or 30 minutes, right? So we're both tired, mad, and at least I am like terrified, okay? Finally, Tad sat down. He let me catch up to him. And when I got there, he said to me, are you ever going to stop effing following me? And I sat down next to him and said, F no. <laughs> and he just started to cry. This teenage boy who had been abandoned by his father, who is essentially an orphan, dropped out of high school, the hardest and meanest kid that I had ever been around, completely lost it. And after quite a while, he kind of got his composure, stopped crying, and we got up and walked back 
all the way to camp together in the middle of the night. We actually ended up spending a lot of time together that week. And when camp was over, Tad stood up in front of every kid at camp, about 300 kids, to tell them that he had decided to follow Jesus. And that's when I started to cry as I realized that what happened in those woods with him is what God does with all of us. You see, we think the life of faith is about a new direction that we take. We're tempted to think that the life of faith is about our faith. We place our faith in God, we follow God, but that's only possible because he first has followed us. Tad certainly had faith, but the point wasn't Tad's faith to follow Jesus. It was Jesus' grace to follow him first. Jesus is not waiting for us to figure out every detail of faith or how to follow him. It, It turns out he's been following you your whole life into every corner and every dark wood that your plan and my plan has ever led us into. He's been right behind us the entire time. The life of faith isn't about our leap of faith. It's not about a new direction nearly as much as it is about God's leap of grace to us. And when we realize that, faith isn't just a new direction, that grace changes faith into a new desire. Looking in 
is about our faith in our plans in our ways even our religion it's just another thing we got to get right but the way of Jesus isn't about our faith it's about God's grace grace upon grace upon grace and what a relief what a joy the life of Jesus the life Jesus is inviting us into is not about our leap of faith toward him, it begins with his leap of grace for us. And as we realize that, the life of faith in the grace of God becomes much more than just a new direction of our trust, it grows into a new desire for our life. And next week we're gonna put those two things together and consider where all of that leads us as grace changes our direction, and our desire. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. It seems that everything else in our life is a performance and like outcome-based and it's all up to us and how good we are, how competent, how fast we run, how far we jump. But you are different. 
You are the source and the goal of life and our lives and in you we find a grace-based life. That it's grace beneath it all, before it all, beyond it all. That it isn't about our goodness but yours. It isn't about how far we can run or how high we can jump but simply about the direction of our faith and the desire of our hearts. Help us to believe that and trust that you are taking the leap of grace toward us every day. As we leave this morning, help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.